Uh, so here we go. We actually wrap up our Trinity series today. Um, and I'm going to roll out a few things this week kind of for what the fall looks like. Um, just kind of obviously with the changes that have been happening and kind of what I... I feel like our church really needs to be focusing on and doing. Um, so our teaching series and stuff are always kind of um, shuffling, as you know. Um, but I'll let you know this week and update you as to what we're doing. But if you remember throughout this series, uh, it's been really important to track with each message in the series as we've kind of built through, like, Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, that we're talking about one God in essence but three persons and that it changes everything, right? It radically changes everything. And that it's key to Christianity, it's key to the gospel and there's a lot of confusion around it. And so what we wanted to do as we come back into the fall is really have this series be one where our eyes, our gaze is diverted back to seeing who God is and what God does. Now how we apply that, this week we're going to see as we look at God the Holy Spirit. Um, last week we looked at the Son and how Jesus Christ comes as God in flesh, perfectly imaging what God is like, right? That we are image bearers, but Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, perfectly images to us what God is like. What God sounds like, how God's posture is, what God looks like when he enters into human history, it's all wrapped up in Jesus. But Jesus did nothing that he did without the empowering presence and infilling of the Holy Spirit. And so what we get to see now is really see Father, Son, and Spirit in this collaborative work of the gospel. That the work of the gospel is the Father, Son, and Spirit working in and through history to bring us broken, sinful humanity into relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. So right away, some of you, depending on your background, talk of the Spirit either excites you a lot and you're like, finally... This is my jam. Or makes you very, very nervous. And just full disclosure, I'll show you my cards. I didn't grow up in the church, but my first initial experience as a believer in the church was in a very charismatic environment. Now I'm a little bit more Bapticostal. I'm a charismatic with a seatbelt. And that seatbelt is the Bible. Right? So here's what we're not going to do today, and we are going to do this soon, in the next hopefully couple months. We're not going to look at any of the gifts of the Spirit. That needs its own treatment. That needs its own kind of unpacking biblically. What we are going to do, though, is we're going to look at the unique work of the Holy Spirit. Because all throughout this series, we've been trying to focus on the Father and His unique work, the Son and His unique work, and the Spirit now today looking at His unique work. And we've struggled to find a balance here, haven't we? Especially in modern churches over the last century for sure, we've struggled in modern evangelical circles to find a balance where we either don't ascribe more to the Spirit than the Bible does, or, or we also avoid ascribing less to the Spirit than the Bible does. It's very tempting to become obsessed with the work of the Spirit, or overlook and ignore the work of the Spirit entirely. If we only focus on experiencing the Spirit or the gifts of the Spirit, we can also miss the full ministry and work of the Spirit. But we also have to be careful not to domesticate the Holy Spirit, only to specific things and specific works. The danger is that we can end up living with a functional trinity. Maybe we believe the trinity as Father, Son, Spirit. But we can end up living with a functional trinity that either gives too much emphasis to the Holy Spirit or not near enough. We end up with kind of in our circles, especially in Baptist Reformed circles, we can end up with a functional trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And the Spirit's just kind of like 
well, does the work like that over there somewhere. Let's keep the spirit in the pages of the Bible. Because as soon as he comes out, it's kind of like, I don't, don't know what to do with him, right? That's more kind of in our circle, in our tent, in our tribe of Christianity. That's, that's more where we would lean. And I think if we don't look fully at the work and person of the spirit, we can end up missing out on some of the real, biblical, scripturally based work of the spirit in our lives today. So, we cannot neglect, ignore, or domesticate the spirit, and hear me on this, and also expect the fruit of the spirit in our life. We cannot. And I think we have. I think we, we have tended to neglect the personal, relational aspect of the spirit of God. Out of fear, out of bad experiences, out of weirdness, just kind of like out of strangeness. Out of feeling like we don't really have like quality control over what the spirit does or says. Because like anyone who shows up and he's like, the spirit told me. You're like, okay. And we don't know what to do with that. But biblically there's lots of parameters actually about what to do when that happens. And that's kind of something we'll unpack when we look at the gifts. But here's, here's the, the focus of today. I'll start with a question. This morning right now, and I'm not talking theoretically, I'm talking about right now in this moment, as the word of God is preached, as the gospel is proclaimed, are you open to the work of the Holy Spirit? Do you want to know the Holy Spirit? If you don't, and if you don't believe in the Holy Spirit, there's good news for you too, because the Holy Spirit loves to convict those hearts. The Holy Spirit wants to change your mind, wants to change my mind, my heart wants to open us up to a specific relationship with the Spirit of God. That's good news. That the Spirit's closer and more desirous of you and I than we could ever imagine. And because of the gospel, we can experience a relationship that ultimately will empower and infill and encourage believers to go out into the world to continue the mission of God that the Spirit has always been on. And that's good news. And I will tell you, without the Spirit of God working and empowering the church in our city, we will not see people meet Jesus. We will not see people know Jesus. We will not see lives transformed. We will not see skeptical hearts convicted of sin. We will not see our city and our nation reached. We will not have any kind of renewal or revival in our city. We won't. So to only kind of look at the gospel and say like, well, it's about Jesus dying for our sin and not look at the application of the gospel that the spirit ultimately convicts hearts and applies it to, we will miss out on the work of the spirit in our city and in our day. So, so vitally important. So throughout scripture, the spirit is very active. He's everywhere, everywhere. Throughout the Old Testament, we see a really nice Hebrew word, ruach. Say ruach. Yeah, yeah, guttural, right into your mask. Sounds good, right? Ruach. And that's used about a hundred times throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Greek word is pneuma. Say pneuma. That's used 250 times. All right, so, so something changes between the Old Covenant work of the Spirit and the New Covenant work of the Spirit. There's something, so the Spirit's always been at work, right? And Spirit just means breath or wind. And you remember right back in Genesis, he's the giver of life. He's actually overseeing creation and the creative work by the word, by the declaration of the Father, right? So we saw the Trinity in our first week of the series working together in perfect unity to bring about life. But the Spirit doesn't just give life, the Spirit gives new life. The Spirit sustains life. 
doesn't just kind of set it up and walk away and hope that the Lego tower stays together. The Spirit is constantly orchestrating and sustaining life, continuously coming at us. Now, I saw a survey in Christianity Today, the magazine, um, this week. 51% of modern North American Christians, by name, people who say they're Christian, believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, an energy, not a personal being. Now, here's the problem with that. It's heresy. <laughs> and secondly, you can't have a personal relationship with a force. I know Luke Skywalker says we can, but we cannot. If the spirit is just a force or an energy, all we can do is conjure it and try to, like, take it and do stuff to it. That's what a force does. It's a passive object, not a, a personal subject. You with me on that? But the Holy Spirit is not a force, not an energy, not something just to kind of like woo-saw into the cosmos or out of the cosmos. Through Facebook, we can't send the Spirit through our thoughts and prayers. The Spirit isn't conjurable. Not, not just kind of malleable to what we want to do with the Spirit. The Spirit is personal. And we need a balance between the personality of the Spirit and the divinity of the Spirit. That the Spirit is co-equal and co-existent and co-eternal with the Father and the Son. In Hebrews 9, the Holy Spirit is called the eternal Spirit. Pre-existent and eternal forever. That the Spirit is and always has been at work with the God of creation to rescue and save and empower and change lives. That's what the Spirit does. But the Holy Spirit is not the Father. And the Holy Spirit is not the Son. That's where the personhood comes in. I'm going to share a few verbs with you. Remember, if you go back to your grammar school, right? Subjects act, and that's a verb, right? There's an action that subjects do. The object is the thing being acted upon. You with me on that? Everyone's like, amen. Love grammar. Yeah. Listen to the verbs attributed to the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. The Holy Spirit grieves. Forces and energies don't grieve. The Holy Spirit loves. The Holy Spirit intercedes and intervenes. The Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit creates. The Holy Spirit has a mind. The Holy Spirit can be lied to. The Holy Spirit can be quenched. The Holy Spirit can be resisted. Some of you are resisting the Spirit this morning already. The Holy Spirit can be blasphemed against. Other titles given to the Spirit, the Counselor, the Helper, the Spirit of the Father, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Truth, and the Spirit of Glory. And the Spirit has always been busy since the beginning, actively participating in the work of creation, actively participating as an agent, doing all of those things that we just, we just saw. The Spirit's always been doing those things and always will do those things. And all throughout Scripture, instrumental in the Exodus is the Spirit of God. Throughout the Old Testament, he gifts. He gives gifts to people for service. My favorite is um, Bezalel in the temple. Where it's like, that's just the dude like fixing up and like carving stuff into wood in the temple. And it says he's full of the Holy Spirit. That messes up your gifts, doesn't it? Simple things like carving wood. You can be full of the Holy Spirit while you carve wood. Right? I love those kinds of stories. But also, he gives extraordinary power and words to many prophets and to other leaders like Joshua and Gideon and Samson and Saul. I was reading 1 Samuel with the kids this week. And Saul is full of the Holy Spirit at first. <laughs> and then he's full of all sorts of weirdness at the end. But the, the amount of times that the Spirit is mentioned about coming on to people and coming in people and filling and, and using people and speaking through people, especially prophets, right? 
empowers and infills and speaks through Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and David and all the other minor and major prophets. And then right at the end of our Bible, in Revelation, in John's Revelation, we see that it's actually the Spirit speaking to the seven churches. The Spirit says, da-da-da-da-da. And in the last chapter of Revelation, it's the Spirit and the Bride that say to Jesus, the victorious one, come. That the Spirit is asking Christ to come. And that the bride, the church, is asking Christ to come. And be in and work within and outside and inside of us as we go out into the world. But the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament is different than the New Testament. And theologians kind of look at this and talk about the difference here. The best way that I can understand it is that in the Old Testament we see the Spirit working in a covenant of visitation. That the Spirit will come, appear, work, and then kind of go. And it's like, well, where does he go? I don't know. Okay? But he doesn't, he visits, right? So whether it's through the temple, whether it's through the Ark of the Covenant, whether it's speaking through a prophet, he comes and then he goes. And the Spirit comes and fills somebody and then leaves. But in the New Testament, we see that the Spirit operates with a covenant of habitation. That now God's Spirit and presence and power actually comes and dwells in and within God's people. So in the Old Testament, we see God, the Spirit, working according to a visitation to make himself known and to do what he does. But in the New Testament, we have that God's Spirit is coming and doing habitation. That he comes and stays. He comes and infills the church to the glory of Christ. to, To honor the Father and the Father's name and Father's kingdom and stays with us. Now there's a lot to unpack. We're going to do a little bit today. But we'll look more at that when we talk about the gifts But here's what's really, really cool that, you know, in Ezekiel and Isaiah and other prophets, they speak about the Spirit doing something different in the future than the Spirit is doing in their time. One of the most classic of that is in Joel, chapter 2, verse 28 through 29. And watch what Joel prophesies about. And it will come to pass afterwards that I will, future, pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, the slaves, in those days I will pour out my spirit. Now do you remember who preaches this in the book of Acts? Peter. After Pentecost, he preaches this text. And he says that this has been fulfilled today in our hearing by the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Now here's why this is unique and here's why this is important. In the Old Testament, the Spirit anointed and appointed certain prophets, priests, and kings. What Joel is saying is radical for the original audience because the Spirit doesn't get poured out on anyone who's not anointed as a prophet, priest, or king. But this prophecy is saying that there will come a day where sons and daughters, men and women, even servants and slaves will, be, will have the Spirit poured out on them so that they can know the God of Israel. So it's this ever-expanding thing that, that Israel has chosen, not because they're awesome, but because they're not. And God makes much of himself through this little tiny people so that to the ends of the earth one day, the same spirit of God that works in and through Israel will eventually come and infill all people. That this God is after everyone and always has been. And he does it through the work of his spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Steve read it this morning. Don't you know that you, plural, are God's temple and that the spirit of God dwells in you. See that? Dwells. Not visits, but dwells. So you see the shift from 
kind of visitation to habitation. It's a shift from God dwelling in the midst of the people via whatever, tabernacle, temple, ark of the covenant, Shekinah glory, all those Pentecostal words we love, right? Or the new covenant is that God actually dwells in people himself. It's radical. And that's the same promise today. Same promise that we see outworked through the New Testament. The same gift that God promises to give. The same one that Jesus talks about sending is his Holy Spirit. He's going to send the Spirit to come and indwell people. To infill us, to change us, to convict us, to empower us, to go and do, Jesus says, mightier works than him. Greater works. That's pretty nuts. Jesus did some great works, amen? Amen. But the church collectively plural, full of the Holy Spirit, is going to do greater works in quantity across planet earth to give him glory. When they are full of the Spirit. It's amazing. So let me just do a flyby really quickly for you through, go- through, through some of the Gospels and the book of Acts. 17 times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Luke alone. And 55 times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the book of Acts. In Luke, it starts with Zechariah being promised that John will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Then the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary to to, to actually allow the miraculous virgin birth of the coming Messiah to happen. We don't give Mary enough credit in Protestant circles. But an amazing woman of God full of the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And then John is filled with the Holy Spirit in Elizabeth's womb. And then like him and Jesus in their wombs have like a bedwomb party because they're both full of the Holy Spirit in their womb. That's awesome. I think so. You don't. I'm sweating. Then Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies about who Jesus is and what he'll do. Then the Holy Spirit is on Simeon when God tells him that he won't die until he sees the Messiah. That's cool. Right? Then he's filled with the Holy Spirit when he sees Jesus as a baby and it's like, oh yeah, that's the one. Then John promises that Jesus will baptize, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then we get to this awesome, Trinitarian, beautiful scene of Jesus' baptism himself. And when Jesus is baptized, the heavens are opened and the Spirit, like a dove, not a dove like a spirit, okay, the Spirit descends upon Jesus, and here's the key, and remains on him. This is vital. Because everyone that was there... Knowing that the Spirit of God has come, come and gone, and come and gone, and visited prophets and priests and kings. This Spirit doesn't leave Jesus. The Spirit comes and remains on Jesus. Because everything Jesus accomplishes in his public ministry is by the power of the Spirit. And then filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus is led into the wilderness to overcome every temptation and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And begin his ministry full of the Holy Spirit. That is just the first few chapters of Luke. We could keep going. But right after this, after the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, which, by the way, smashes prosperity theology all over the place, that the Spirit of God leads us into temptation and suffering, sometimes to be pruned to the glory of God. Smashes all sorts of categories. But Jesus does that for us on our behalf to come out the other side to then declare what he is about to do for the world. And in Luke 4, we see this awesome passage where he stands up in the synagogue on the Sabbath and he grabs Isaiah 61. It's his turn to read. It's like Jesus, Joseph, and Mary's son, it's your turn to read. Come on up here. And he gets up and he grabs the scroll and he reads Isaiah 61, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
Proclaim freedom to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, giving freedom to the oppressed, and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. That's Jubilee. And that represented in Israel rest and freedom. And then Jesus does what only Jesus can. This is a Jesus mic drop. He goes and sits down and then he goes, this has been fulfilled today in your hearing. And everyone loses their mind. That's, that's Jesus for what's up fools, right? Like he probably dropped the manuscript. He probably rolled it up and went, and went and sat down and then just said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. But you see what he's claiming right from the beginning of his ministry. He's claiming that he is the one, not a anointed one, not an anointed one, but the anointed one, full of the spirit of God. And then Luke continues and all the gospels go. And then we see in the book of Acts, which is a sequel to the gospels, watch the Holy Spirit. And this is again just a flyby, okay. This is fast and coming at you on purpose. Listen to this. The Holy Spirit is giving credit for the great commission that Jesus commands his disciples. Jesus promises to baptize, immerse, fully cover his disciples with the Holy Spirit. To give them power by the Holy Spirit to go and continue his mission. Then Peter preaches by the power of the Holy Spirit. The church is then filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost as prophesied in Joel 2. And then the Holy Spirit empowers the church to live out the gospel. And all the rest of the book of Acts is, is showing that the Holy Spirit is actually delivering on the promise to send the church by the power of the Holy Spirit to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Acts is actually organized that way to show that the gospel is going out by and in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Church, that's just a few examples. And if we forget or miss the work of the Holy Spirit, we miss God's power and presence in the life of the church. The Spirit is the life giver, the life blood of the church. Just as the Spirit's role was to fill and empower and equip Jesus, the Holy Spirit today, his role is to fill and empower and equip the church to continue the mission that Jesus was on. And that's why Jesus can look at his disciples and say, you're going to do greater works than me. Now, lots can be said about the Holy Spirit. And we're going to say a few things about the work of the Holy Spirit. But here's where I want to start. I want to start by looking at one of the most absurd things that I think Jesus ever said. Jesus said a lot of crazy things that were true because he's God, okay. But there's one particular passage and here's your homework this week. Read John 14 through 16. And it's Jesus' kind of like hurrah on the Holy Spirit and the sentness of God. And this amazing Trinitarian passage about the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And in John 16... Verse 7, here's what Jesus says about him and the Spirit. Watch this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is better for you, it is to your advantage, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now this is wild. What Jesus just said, this, this is, what Jesus said is something that you and I would never think about. If I asked you, what's better... For Jesus to be here in the flesh right now, or for him to not be? What, what would your answer be? It's like, well, it would be pretty cool to have him here. Why? Well, because we're materialistic. So we just got to touch Jesus' face and see his body, Jesus, right? Like we just want to, Jesus, right here. He's real if he's here. Well, it's because we bought into a materialistic worldview. That's not this. Jesus is actually saying, it is better for you if I go. Like I've done what I'm going to do, and the Holy Spirit is going to come and do what he does. Because the Holy Spirit is going to come and apply everything that I have done. Everything that Jesus does, the Holy Spirit does. And so he's saying, I'm going to send him. And the word he uses is helper. You saw that? Paraclete is the word in Greek 
And that's like helping presence. It's, it's advocate. It's, it's, it's helper. And it's more than just kind of like throw me, a, throw me a bone when I need help. It's an advocate. It's someone that comes along and convinces and argues. And it's our defense attorney. And Jesus just said that it's better off right now to have the Holy Spirit unleashed on the world than to have Jesus here in the flesh. Do you think of the Holy Spirit like that? If we're honest, most of us don't. We don't sit and go, I'm so glad that Jesus is gone. <laughs> right? We just kind of go like, oh, Jesus, Maranatha, come back. Yeah, Jesus, rapture, whatever. It's like, no, 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 Jesus just said we're actually better off now in this season of human history because the Holy Spirit is sent by God the Father and the Son because the redemptive work on the cross has been completed. And now the Holy Spirit comes. So here's what we're going to do. Five things. We're just going to look at the work of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit actually do biblically? Now we're going to move fast. There's going to be a lot of scripture. Don't worry about turning there. Most of them are going to be up here unless there's ones I say that aren't up there. Okay? Number one. Jesus goes on in the next few verses in, in John 16 and tells us that the Holy Spirit convicts. The word convict, conviction. Watch what he says. And when he comes, so I'm going to send him. He's, he's coming. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, three things, and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. There's a lot in there. But what's happening there is that the, the, the idea is that one of the principal works of the Holy Spirit is to come and convict the world of sin. You know how radically this changes how we think about the gospel and how we share the gospel and how we pray for people to understand the gospel? I don't care how good you are at evangelism. I don't care how good you are at unpacking scripture. I don't care how, how, how jazzed up you are about theology and doctrine. If the Holy Spirit does not change and convict someone's heart of sin, they will not be saved. Like that, that, that's it. All we do is we show up and we pray for the tinder fire that is in people's heart to be just lit aflame, ablaze by the Holy Spirit. Because if you and I are not convicted by sin, we do not need a savior. So our neighbors, our colleagues, our family members, our spouses, our siblings who don't know Jesus. You can walk around grumpy and angry that they don't know Jesus and they're not serving the Lord. Or you can pray that the Spirit would convict them of sin so that they will need their, their, to, to see their need for a Savior. And by be rescued because what they're living for is a false God. And all that's going to be at the end of that is death. The Holy Spirit needs to convict the world of sin. The Holy Spirit needs to show us that we're wrong. And here's the thing. Today, in our culture, we think we're right. <laughs> and if we don't think we're wrong every once in a while, we will not know the one who is always right. That's a big deal. I love that he says righteousness too. Because we all think that our definition of what is right is right. And our definition of right always falls short of the glory of God. Always. doesn't matter. All the, all the fight for, for different versions of righteousness and judgment and justice today, they're all wrong. Unless they're rooted in the righteousness and justice and judgment of the God who comes and convicts our hearts of where we're wrong. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And I love the word conviction. I know we don't do it in our modern evangelical thing because we're all about tingles and positive vibes on Sunday. I love conviction. You know why? Because it keeps dusted in check. Like if I didn't, if I was not convicted by the Holy Spirit that I need him, guess what I wouldn't do? I wouldn't live for him. 
People that don't think they need God do not want God. Are you with me on that? The Holy Spirit convicts, and the word there is argues. It convinces our heart. It wrestles with us while we go off and pursue all sorts of other things. The Holy Spirit comes and just argues with our heart and says, no, 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 you need, you need me. And it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, Paul says in Romans 2. It's his gracious love. So the first thing today, like right now, some of you need to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. Me up here screaming and sweating is not going to do it. You trying to relig religiosity yourself into some like good books with God is not going to do it. You need the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You need to be at such a low point that you know you need rescuing from yourself. And God the Holy Spirit promises to apply that. To rescue us, to convince us, to convict us, to bring us and reconcile us back to the God who did the work on the cross through his son Jesus Christ. We need conviction, church. If there's anything we need more in our modern evangelical churches is a lot of people convicted of sin. Number two, the Holy Spirit converts and gives new life. We see in the early pages of Genesis, the Holy Spirit is the one that, that is overseeing creation and giving life. But the Holy Spirit also gives new life. In John 3, one of the kind of most well-known passages where Jesus talks about this with his buddy Nicodemus. Um, read that this week too, it's a great one. But Jesus says to Nicodemus, who knows a lot of theology by the way, dude is smart, says unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Whoever's born of the flesh is born of the flesh. Whoever's born of the spirit is born of the spirit. There's a conversion that takes place. There's something radically new that happens in us. John Wesley called it the warming, just kind of like this crazy warming of his heart, right? That he's experienced, like we're talking about John Wesley who was like a pastor writing books, preaching already, and didn't know the Holy Spirit. <laughs> right? Like this is crazy. There's a washing, there's a regeneration, there's a renewal, there's something that happens that converts and changes us. The Holy Spirit is the only one that changes hearts and minds, that argues and wrestles with us, that awakens us to the deep need of Christ and the depth of our sin. That's the work of the Spirit. Apostle Paul unpacks this in Ephesians 1. We'll, we'll read it real quick. Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14. In him, Christ... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is, not what, not a force or an energy, who, a person, is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it. I love those verses. The idea of an inheritance, the idea of being stamped, it's, it's an image of a king's seal on wax, right? Like that there's actually this imprint that the Holy Spirit, when we come to believe the gospel, actually leaves the imprint of the Spirit of God on our life and seals us and it's the down payment of what is to come. Meaning everything Jesus did for us in the gospel, the Spirit does for us here and now and today. Applies it, seals us, protects us, reminds us of what we need to be reminded of. So Jesus' sinless life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection from the dead, all of that is applied to us today and it's given a stamp of authenticity. This is the real deal. Without the spirit of God, Christians can run around and say that they're Christians. 
We can, we can come and do this all week and be like, oh, look at me, I'm a Christian, this is great. Without the stamp of authenticity and the overpowering, infilling work of the Holy Spirit, you are not saved. You aren't. No one is. So we can't have a Christian salvation aside and apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Three. We got to keep going. The 1115 is not going to happen. Number three, the Holy Spirit teaches. The Holy Spirit teaches. Uh, when Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit in John 14 through 16, he, he unpacks this a little bit more. Watch this. 1426. He says, but the helper, again, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then in chapter uh, 16, a little bit later, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. I love those verses. The question is, do you rely on the Holy Spirit to teach you? How often do you go to the Word of God without the Spirit of God? How often do you come and try to commune and have relationships with the people of God without the Spirit of God? I was thinking about community. I don't have time today, but I was thinking about community a lot, and I was going through verses in the community. And so, it's so amazing how we put so much emphasis on Christian community and we forget about the Spirit. You know the only way that you can actually enjoy relationships and fellowship with people who are nothing like you in any superficial way is by the power of the Spirit. It's by the power of the Spirit that we get to know each other. It's by the power of the Spirit that we forgive each other when we, when we goof up. It's by the power of the Spirit that we actually experience relationship without worldly categories that we should. It's easy to surround yourself with people exactly like you. It is only a work of the Spirit to surround yourself with people who are nothing like you except for them glorifying Jesus Christ. The Spirit teaches us to do that. So do you create space and time to be taught by the Holy Spirit? Or do you go to God's word without the spirit of God? Or do you go and just pursue experiences of the spirit without the word of God? That's the danger, right? Isn't it? That we only go to the word of God without the spirit of God. Or we go for tingles with the spirit or certain gifts without the word of God. And scripture always has this beautiful orchestrated work between the spirit of God and the word of God. Always together. And right back in Genesis... The spirit is hovering over the face of the nothingness and then God speaks. And it's the spirit that goes and applies the word. It's the empowering, life-giving presence of the spirit that makes the word do what the word does in power. And they're always working together. So I'll tell you right now, our biblical literacy is so down in the West because I think that we have come to the word of God without the illuminating power of the spirit of God. And we've tried to professionalize and centralize Christian teachers and be like, oh, the guy up there, he's the one full of the spirit of God. That's not biblical. And it's silly. So right here, we see that the Spirit teaches. Now what does the Spirit teach about? Did you catch that? Who does the Spirit talk about? Jesus. Always and only about Jesus. Now I love that. I love that Jesus says the Spirit's going to come. He's going to teach you everything. But he's only going to talk about me. Right? So that so often we talk about the Spirit and make it about us. And our gifts and what we say. And an oracle from the Lord and all this nonsense. When it's supposed to be about Jesus. That the Spirit only highlights Jesus. The Spirit never turns the spotlight on himself. The Spirit is only always turning the spotlight on Jesus Christ. So if you think you've had an experience with the Spirit and it doesn't make much of Jesus, it is not the Spirit of God. Joe Thorne uh, in his book on the Trinity 
It says, if you neglect the spirit, you will miss the son. You cannot have the son of God without the spirit of God. You cannot understand the word of God without the spirit of God. You cannot know the son without the father of the son. You cannot. You will not. We need a radical reorientation of this. And if your love for God the spirit does not heighten your dependence on Jesus, it's not the spirit. We got to get that. We got to get that. So important. Number four, the Holy Spirit comforts. So after all this radical craziness that I just said to you about the conviction part, thank God the Holy Spirit also comforts. Amen? That the Holy Spirit is real. That the Holy Spirit is proximate. That the Holy Spirit is available. That when we are experiencing pain and doubt and loss and anger and suffering and confusion and anxiety and depression, guess who is available? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is called the comforter who encourages and reminds. So when, on days when you feel like quitting, it's the Holy Spirit that convinces your heart not to. When you're tempted to give up on that difficult person or that difficult spouse, it's the Holy Spirit that reminds you of grace and mercy and love that's been extended to you so you can go and extend it to them. When you're at your wit's end with what is going on out in the world and you don't know where to go, this Holy Spirit that offers us peace and offers to bring us home. And it's the Holy Spirit that stirs up affections in our heart. It's the Holy Spirit that fights against fear and anxiety and worry. It's the Holy Spirit that comforts. But here's the clincher, Reach. You don't need a comforter if you're already comfortable. That was like three things. I was like, no. <laughs> the Western church is built on your comfort. You know where the Spirit of God is not? In that. We do not need comforting from the Holy Spirit of God if we're already trying to pursue comfort for ourselves. And I think that's why many of us maybe are missing out on a real communion, a real relationship, a vibrant, life-giving relationship with the Holy Spirit. And I love that he comforts us by reminding us of who we are. Doesn't comfort us with just like superficial things. Uh, if you remember in Romans 8 and Galatians 4, both times it's this idea that it's the spirit that bears witness that we are sons and daughters of God. And that Christ has sent the spirit of God into our heart to cry out what? Do you remember? Abba, Father. So how does the spirit comfort us? It reminds us who we are. It reminds us who we belong to. It reminds us who our life belongs to. It reminds us that there is no condemnation for those in Christ, even when we're boneheads. It reminds us that we're actually acting out of character when we're going off and chasing and pursuing nonsense. The Spirit of God comes and says, that's not who you are. That's not who your dad is. That's not what your big brother Jesus has done to rescue you and bring you home to the king. The Spirit does that. Praise God that he does. Fifth and finally... The Spirit empowers. Now we don't have time to unpack this in detail. But Acts 1 and 2. When the Spirit comes to fulfill that prophecy in Joel 2. The day of Pentecost. If you notice, right away in Acts 1, uh, Luke is writing a sequel to his gospel, right? So he writes this second book to show what the work of the Spirit is doing. And often we call Acts the Acts of the Apostles. But really when you read that bad boy, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Right, the Holy Spirit is so busy. And what's really interesting, in Acts 1 verse 8, watch this. Jesus promises at his ascension that you, plural, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Okay, stop for a second. You will receive, say it, power. You will receive power. 
Okay, now listen, if there's anything that our church is not known for in the West, it's power. The mark of the Holy Spirit on the church is power. Not money, not success, not happiness, not popularity, not a life free of tough stuff. Power. The promise to the church is that they'll receive power to do what? Be living witnesses to the end of the earth. That's the mission of the church. Which means we should can everything that doesn't do that. The word there for power is dunamis. Mm, it's a good word. It's where we get dynamite. Like if, I don't know if you noticed, but like dynamite doesn't do stuff subtly. You with me on that? No, that was some quiet dynamite and that whole mountain came down. That's weird. No, no, no. Dynamite like does stuff. Blows stuff up. It's that kind of power that the Holy Spirit comes and demolishes barriers. For what? To be witnesses to the gospel. Which means that the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead is the same spirit that seeks to indwell you and I. Talk about power. That's power. That's real power. Not earthly power, not worldly power, not career power, not nonsense that everyone's running around the sandbox here trying to acquire for themselves. This is power that comes from God, the one who already is on the throne. To empower and fill the church to go. And here's the thing. I think some of us, we want to use the spirit for our mission. He's never going to go on mission with you if you're about your mission. The spirit empowers and fills the church to go about his mission. We don't go to the spirit and say, help me, help my money, help my marriage, help my business, help my family, help my problems. We come and we say, you are Lord, fill me with more of yourself so that none of those things matter anymore. See the different posture? So church, here's the thing. You want the Spirit's power? Do something that requires it, for goodness sake. Like live life that requires it. Like I don't know if you've read, like Book of Acts is like Pirates of the Caribbean meets Stranger Things. Like it's just like the craziness that's going on there. Because they're stepping out. That they're actually doing something we're doing. You don't think that they were afraid? You don't think they were losing their lives? You don't think there were things going on they needed to rely on the Spirit of God for? So much of our Christian life today, we don't even require the power of the Spirit. Then we wonder where He is. If you want to experience the power of God, you've got to do something that actually requires it. And right here, we see that the Spirit empowers His people by filling His people. Now there's lots that can be done here. We're not going to get through it. But here's the point. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be taken over by the Holy Spirit. Not in our charismaniac way, but interesting that Paul in Ephesians 5 talks about, don't get drunk, like stop getting drunk, okay, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now the word there is be continuously filled up with the Holy Spirit. It's not like a one-time filling. It's a repeated infilling over and over and over and over again. Now what does that have in common of like drunkenness and the Holy Spirit? Well, it doesn't mean that when we're full of the Holy Spirit, we look like a bunch of drunk morons. That's not what it means. What it does mean though, is that to be drunk is to be under the influence of alcohol. And Paul's saying, some of you guys still think it's okay to go get drunk. You're way more comfortable getting drunk than actually being filled by the Holy Spirit. Check yourself. That's what he's saying. Being full of the Holy Spirit is to be the un under the influence of the Spirit of God. It's to be fully animated and moved and breathe and talk and act and live empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's to be under the Spirit's influence. And that means two things for you and I. And then we'll pray and we'll wrap it up. It means that we leak. <laughs> it 
means that there's cracks in us and that we, there's times we're full of other stuff. <laughs> full of pride and full of anger and full of selfishness and full of greed and full of all sorts of things. And we need more of the Spirit. That's what it means. Remember that Paul is talking to the church and he's saying, be filled by the Holy Spirit. Which implies that some of them are not filled by the Holy Spirit. And that's the second thing. Some of them aren't filled with the Spirit of God. I know self-sufficiency and independence is the sermon of our culture, but it's a bad one that quenches the Holy Spirit. You cannot be dependent upon yourself and live a self-sufficient Western life and also be full of the Spirit at the same time. You cannot be full of yourself and full of the Spirit at the same time. You cannot be full of anger and full of the Spirit at the same time. You cannot be full of bitterness and unforgiveness and full of the Spirit at the same time. You cannot be full of consumerism and materialism and greed and be full of the Spirit at the same time. You cannot. And Paul is talking to Christians saying, be filled by the Holy Spirit. Some of you are not filled with the Holy Spirit. And it comes out. And it shows up. The fascinating passage in Acts 19, Paul runs into this church, this group of believers, who are believers, and he's like, what about the Holy Spirit? And they're like, I've never heard of him. And he prays for them, lays hands on them, and they're full of the Holy Spirit. Some of you are not full of the Holy Spirit. Joe Thorne says this. This is important. Scripture commands you to be full, filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> this means that spirit filling is something you can and should pursue. Paul says that filling is connected with worship, gratitude, and submission to one another in the church. Don't miss that. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, you are most likely to experience it in the context of the local church. It's really important. That has all sorts of implications about gifts too, and we'll get there. But we need more than anything to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit, church, is to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, amen? It's to be more full of more of Him and less of us. It's to be full of more of Him and less of all the nonsense that's fighting for our attention and fighting for our identity and fighting to just attract us and distract us from everything. We need to be full of Gentleness, kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and joy, and peace, and patience, and self-control. And that comes from an infilling of the Holy Spirit. So church, we're out of time. <laughs> As you can tell, I am not done. But the danger for every church in every age is to become a place that meets people's religious consumeristic needs rather than a movement of people full of the Spirit of God on the mission of God. That's the danger in every age. In every cultural context, in every church, is to just be a place that meets people's spiritual and consumeristic needs. Instead of being a people full of the Holy Spirit that goes out into everywhere we are by the power of the Spirit. We need that. We need it today. The presence and the power of the Holy Spirit is God's way of showing us, church, that he was not done at the cross. Hear that again. That the work of redemption, the work of salvation was completed. It is finished. Te telestai. We looked at that last week. It is finished. But the Holy Spirit's just getting started showing us the outworking of that. The Holy Spirit is just getting started with the inbreaking of the kingdom of God that was established with our king on the cross. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of redemption and applying it and hearts turning to him is just getting started. So, are you hungry for that? Do you want more of that? And if you don't, you need the Spirit to convict you to want more of that. If that doesn't animate you and excite you and, and, and that doesn't lead you just to mourn. That people don't experience this or mourn that you have not experienced it. What you need is the Spirit of God. You need to experience the work of the Spirit in your life. Do you want to meet with the Holy Spirit? Do you want to have a relationship with the Spirit of God? Have you invited the power of the Holy Spirit into your life? Not just here, 
but like in the ordinary life, which is where all of Acts happens, by the way, under trees and at dinner tables and in parks. That's where the Holy Spirit's at work. Do you want more of that? Today, I'm inviting you to pray. I'm inviting you to ask him to fill you. And even if you're still skeptical, even if you still have fears, even if you're nervous about this, trust the Spirit enough to do the work of the Spirit in a way that aligns with who you are in Him. Don't allow that to be a barricade. Don't allow that to lead to discomfort. Allow the Spirit to move. Because the Spirit knows what He's doing. The Spirit knows how to empower you. The Spirit knows how to comfort you. The Spirit knows how to argue with your sin-sick heart. The Spirit knows how to comfort you. I'll close with this. Sam Storms wrote a beautiful book on the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. And listen to this. This just was my, my heart cry this week, I think, as I prayed through this. Watch this. We say we want revival, but on our terms. We don't pray this way, but this is what our hearts are always saying to God. Come, Holy Spirit, but only if you promise in advance to do things the way that we have always done them in our church. Come, Holy Spirit but only if I have some sort of prior guarantee that when you show up, you won't embarrass me. Come Holy Spirit, but only if your work of revival is one that I can still control, one that preserves intact the traditions that, that which, sorry, with which I am comfortable. Come Holy Spirit, but only if your work of revival is neat and tidy and dignified and understandable and above all else, socially acceptable. Come Holy Spirit, but only if you plan to change others. Only if you make them to be like me. Only if you convict their hearts so that they will live and dress and talk like I do. Come Holy Spirit, but only if you let us preserve our distinctives and retain our differences from others whom we find offensive. I'm one of those crazy guys who prays for revival. But before... The Spirit of God is poured out on our city and changes hundreds and thousands of lives. The Spirit of God needs to indwell the church. We cannot just pray for revival and then quench the Spirit of God. He starts by reviving us. Starts by reviving our heart. Starts by convicting us of sin. Starts by empowering us and giving us gifts. Then our city will be changed. That is my prayer. That's our prayer. And it's amazing, in Luke 11, Jesus actually tells his disciples to ask for the Holy Spirit. Ask for the Holy Spirit. My prayer is that today some of you will ask for the Holy Spirit. We're going to sing one song while we invite the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to do. We're going to sing it. So let me pray that and then we're going to sing it together. Father, we pray, come Holy Spirit. Not on our terms, but on yours. We ask, Spirit, that you would reveal yourself to our heart, that you would convict us where we need conviction, that you would teach us where we need teaching, that you would comfort us where we need comforting, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement. I pray for everyone right here under the sound of my voice that, Spirit, you would move. Right now, you would speak. Right now, that you would fill us. Right now, that you would empower us and that our community our families, our marriages, our city, and our nation of Canada would not be the same because, Spirit, you would breathe your life and power out on your church right now in Jesus' name. As we sing and as we invite you, we just ask, Lord, that you would superintend that and that you would come for your glory and for your name. 
We ask these things in the only name that matters, in Jesus' name. Amen.